Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Cult Faves. I'm Cher. And I'm Gwenda. And your hair is so blue. (laughs) I did a conditioning treatment this morning. (laughs) Also, we finally have some sun, so I'm like pretending not to be in my deep funk of depressive uh, winter. Oh, my God. It's been so bad this year. Same. I, I mean, know. just motivating to do anything is so hard. <laughs> it's literally like the hardest thing ever. <laughs> um, Tell so us about your new... No, no, no. You have bigger news. So you have to go first because you have oh. a new family member, a new a new the member. Baby. Wait, you haven't seen him, though. You I've seen video him. Pictures. No, you haven't seen him, seen him. Well, that's true. That's true. Come on. Rizzo, come here. He's looking up. So he's kind of starting to learn his name. Oh, come here. <laughs> In case you guys have not seen, oh my goodness, what a cutie! So, Rizzo, 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 you are so adorable. He's very tiny because he's underweight because he was a stray. But he's such a cutie. He's also a little bit of a punk. I'm not gonna lie. (laughs) He's basically uh, carrying Rocco's torch perfectly. Aw, yay. (laughs) And Grover, Grover, meanwhile, is like, I will lift my head and wag my tail, but that's it. I'm taking a nap. <laughs> I know. he's Grover's so funny because he was so, like, at first, when I first got the dog, when we went outside to get him, Grover was all excited. He's like, oh, my God, who is this? I can't wait to meet him. And then when he saw, hi, baby, come here. Come on, up, up, up. Aww, I know. They're so cute. <laughs> and then when he saw that, like, he was staying. He <laughs> went on an epic pout. The uh, my favorite version of this is when we got Puck. We took Emma to the shelter to meet him, and and she was like, they just ignored each other, um, which is supposed to be like a decent sign. Uh, and so we get Puck, and I'm like, have him in my lap, and we had this uh, like a small SUV at that time, and Emma the dog goes all the way to the back. And just is like, I am ignoring everyone in this car. <laughs> like, this is not happening. And I mean, this is a dog that always wanted to be in the front seat. So it was, uh, and also then he threw up on me on the way home. So that was great. nice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Grover was just like, he just pouted like so hard. And then he was getting so jealous. They're so funny. And it, it's so funny. And then like, then he would do this thing where when someone else would come here or around them, you know, he'd be all excited like he always is. But then all of a sudden he would sit down and he would try to act like he was like the most mature. Oh, of course. The docile dog. Of course. Because almost like I'm not a maniac like this little fucker. Right. Exactly. And then, and then like the <laughs> other day, like I was sitting on the couch and um, Rizzo was to my left. Grover was to my right. And I'm turning and I'm facing Rizzo because I'm trying to teach him how to give his paw. And then all of a sudden, like behind me, I hear, and I turn around and Grover's sitting there giving me his paw, annoyed that I'm not taking it. He's like, I can give paw. Yeah, it was so funny. So, but Rizzo was just relentless. He was not like, he was, he just kept on like trying to hump him and like lick his peach and just was on like lick his ears. He was just all over Grover. And I was afraid that eventually Grover was going to go from like indifferent to aggressive and annoyed. Yeah, sure. But then this morning, like, but he would watch him. Like, he would be curious about what he was doing. And then this morning, uh, they started playing in bed. So I was like, oh, my God, this is a good sign. So I didn't want to, like, jinx it. And then I took them to a park that's fenced in by me. And I let them off the leash. And they finally started playing this morning. So Always it took a about, relief. It took, 
literally exactly a week. Yeah, yeah. It's at least a week. That's just that's just par for the course. It took Izzy a lot longer than that to warm up to Sally, actually. But now uh, now they're good. Um, so, yeah. So, so you guys, uh, we're sorry we have been uh, <laughs> MIA. We had technical difficulties and all sorts of things. And um, that means that we have not actually announced on an episode that we're going bi-weekly. I know. So we're going bi-weekly, FYI. <laughs> Just uh, so that we can have some sanity and have yeah. time to do research. <laughs> and we yeah. meant to be back last week, but it, it wasn't in the cards because we recorded a whole episode and then curse, curse. Even before we started recording, we kept yeah. having issues. Yeah. And then we were laughing about it. And then when we went to pull the audio, it was, <laughs> I was like, what the fuck? Like, I sent her like a video of what my computer and looked like. And by the way, I don't know if she'll do it when we re-record that, that episode because we're doing something different with this one. Um, you know, Cher brought out her Valley Girl voice, which was amazing. Okay. I'll do it in the next one. I won't do it. All right. So, but today, we have, yeah, our, yeah. we have our first guest. Yes. Today, we have our first guest. She runs a podcast that is fairly new called Cult Talk with Aaron Martin. She also has another podcast about reality TV. So you guys would have really gotten really? along. Oh, I yeah. Got, I need to talk to her. Um, she was great. So she was actually born into a cult called the Church of Bible Understanding, which was first known as the Forever Family. And it was founded in Allentown, Pennsylvania in 1971 by this guy named Stuart Trail. It was a form of evangelical Christianity. He basically started having these um, giant kind of outdoor revival type meetings. He was the son of a minister and he was a vacuum cleaner salesman, which is actually really important to this cult. Um, and, and I feel like just like, uh, and we talk a little bit about this in the, in the interview, but there are so many of these things that recur, right? That seem odd. Like, remember the first Koresh guy that we did was also like a, he was like a traveling doctor and it seems like, yeah. Kind of a, a way that people sort of started doing this kind of stuff, like traveling around, so talking crazy. to people. I know. So he uh, he decided to re... Because Forever Family was was not really all that popular after, like, say, the Manson family became a thing. He renamed the group the Church of Bible Understanding. And they sort of started... He started demanding total obedience... There was one report that I read that said he weighed his wife in public and would, like, yell at her if he didn't like the results. Um, at first, he was apparently fairly chaste, and I talk about this with Aaron, but eventually, of course, you know, as all these guys do, he starts sleeping with the women in the in the cult. And the men were basically workhorses. He made them work for his business, um, his carpet cleaning businesses. And yes, this was the inspiration for the carpet cleaning episode called on Seinfeld. Oh, my God. This is amazing. <laughs> That's amazing. Um, I know. I know. And so um, basically, he would take all the money from the followers. They had to give everything to him. He... uh was accused of recruiting homeless people out of shelters. And at one point, a judge issued an injunction borrow. Oh, my God. Um, you know who else? Who did homeless that? People? Who? The Rajne Rajneeshis. Oh, that's right. That's right. 
Um, so yeah, so he did that and, and he eventually a judge, uh, barred their, him and his followers from housing or transporting anyone under the age of 18 without parental permission. In the 1980s, some of the members of Kobu in Philly were convicted of beating his youngest son at his behest. And I mean, this guy just sounds like the worst. Uh, he ends up becoming kind of rich. Um, and somebody for Philly Mag actually infiltrated this, a reporter named Sabrina Rubin Erdley infiltrated them and wrote a feature that won awards in 1999 and kind of exposed a lot of what they were doing. And, um, he actually only died this year, like right around the time that Aaron started her podcast. Um, but he lived down in a mansion in Florida. Though they don't have a lot of members, they still run this orphanage down in Haiti. Um, oh, my God. That, that, oh, this yeah. This is all so predatory. Oh, it's so predatory. Uh, that, but get, get, just, you're going to love this next part. Um, but basically, the, um, the AP investigated this orphanage, and there are lots of indications that they don't actually take very good care of the kids there and like sort of reports of malnutrition and all sorts of things, which is completely uh, understandable because they also get a ton of money from a business that they run called um, old oldie with an E at the end, good things, which is a high end architectural salvage business that sells antiques which you know again we've we've seen like this as a as a means of these cults that end up getting rich or finding wealthy people sally the dog by the way if you are hearing (laughs) she is rolling around she's writhing on the floor um scratching her back and playing with her little reindeer toy but at any rate so they have this um they have this these and and so they have uh uh headquarters um, like a, a shop in New York, they have shops in other big cities, um, and they bring in millions of dollars a year. You'll hear more in the interview. So it's, uh, it's definitely interesting to chat with, with Aaron about, um, her parents, you know, and how they yeah. fled this, you know, they, they got out just in time. It sounds like, um, but you know, the, her early years were spent in this, um, this cult, which, uh, as you'll hear, her experience was kind of not necessarily a bad one because the women were sort of left alone at that point. And so she basically had all of these kind of group helping her mom with childcare. And uh, so for her, you know, her memories aren't that bad. The interesting thing about her podcast is so the whole first season will be about Kobu and she's talking to cult experts and different people who came out of the cult um, and then the second season of her, uh, of her podcast will focus on a different cult. So she's oh, doing wow. like what, basically what you wanted the A&E show to do, you know, <laughs> yeah, like, like exactly. getting like a, getting a lot of different points of view on, on one cult instead of just one person's, you know, kind of what happened to them and extrapolating from it. So hi there. Uh, we are very excited to have our first guest. This is Gwenda, and I'm going to be chatting with Erin Martin, who has a new podcast that she'll tell you all about, but who also has a very interesting 
background of her own um, with uh, a cult that her parents were involved in when she was born. And I know you probably know this, but uh, this is the cult that was sort of spoofed on Seinfeld. So <laughs> that is, uh, I imagine, like a great, uh, I imagine that's great, like party anecdote, like icebreaker for you. <laughs> it is. Hey, Gwenda, <laughs> thanks for having me. First of all, I love your podcast. So oh, this is fun. Thanks. Yeah, it, it was spoofed on Seinfeld. And I didn't know that at the time I watched it, which is really bizarre because I should have been able to add that up. I could, I did not until well, later. And I was the, like, the reality is probably a lot different than it was on Seinfeld, right? Totally. Yeah, it was really funny on Seinfeld. I'm like, I don't remember it being that funny. <laughs> yeah. So tell us a little bit about you and um, this cult and your podcast where people will be able to get a much deeper dive into this topic. Yeah, sure. So I uh, just launched a podcast. It's my second podcast. My my first love is reality TV, but I always included a little bit of cults on my um, Pink Shade podcast, mm -hmm. which has been around for about a year. This new one is called Cult Talk with Aaron Martin, and it was launched on Halloween Day. And it really is going to be, it is an episodic podcast that focuses on one cult per season. And my background is that I was born in a cult. It is a good party icebreaker uh, in the right kind of party. Right. It, <laughs> you have to really you have to really read the room before you bust out with that. Sure. But I was I was born in a cult and it was called the it, it is called the Kobu, the Church of Bible Understanding. And uh, my podcast Cult Talk season one focuses on the Kobu. And I interview my mother who has it took me a year of really pestering her, but she's finally agreed to tell her story. And I then follow it up with other ex-Kobu members. I'm going to be having some cult experts on, some deprogrammers, uh, one woman's story of actually getting, quote, deprogrammed and how that didn't go so well. And yeah, just really talking about all things Kobu. And then I'm going to be exploring other cults in future seasons. And I'm really trying to focus on cults that people haven't heard about in the mainstream too much because as you know with your podcast because you touch on so many different cults and topics and cult-like groups there are so many it's not just Scientology and Nexium. so many so many and you know we have tons of just tips and things that come into the inbox and it'll I'm sure it will be exactly the same for you Oh yeah, it is. I mean, it it already sort of has been because I've 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 touched on cults and I've told my own story a little bit here and there on my other podcast. And I'll get you know you get the emails too, and I, I get them, and it's like it, some of them are so funny. It's like, is this a cult or am I in a cult? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, totally. Or I think I was in a cult, or I bought a reading from the psychic, and yeah, totally, totally. And some some things are just scams, you know, and they're not necessarily cults. I think I, I really had a good conversation with Rick Allen Ross, who is one of the premier cult experts. And he has a great website. If you just, you know, anybody can Google Rick Allen Ross. He's a, he was a cult deprogrammer. He's written a lot of books. He's, he's always kind of the talking head you'll see on Dateline episodes and things like that. He does a really good job of explaining what is a cult and what is cult like. It kind of puts me back into the mind frame of like, because I'll look around and think, especially with my background, like everything's a cult, you know, I just I have mean, like, it's hard not to see it once you <laughs> once you have a podcast. It's hard not to see cults everywhere. Seriously? We'll talk about I mean, being raised by parents who technically escaped a cult, right? You're, you're paranoid about any group you enter after that. 
I will tell you, it does shape your worldview pretty much forever. Of course. So so tell people who don't know, who aren't familiar with Kobu, just the thumbnail of Stuart Trail, right, was the founder yeah, Stuart Trail. Uh, he was he was uh, like a forty year old, thirty something year old in the early seventies, late sixties, early seventies, uh, from small town in Pennsylvania. My family, my mother was from Pennsylvania, my father was from Florida, Kentucky area, and he just started recruiting. You know, it was the, it was a sign of the times. A lot of people were searching for things outside of themselves. It was right after the Manson family stuff. However, it was also still in that late 60s, early 70s period where kids, teenagers specifically, were really rebelling from their families and looking for new ways of living, not just the nuclear family in a ranch on a cul-de-sac, you know? Right. He just really kind of captured the spirit of that time by offering this idea of this new Christianity. So Kobu Church of Bible Understanding was originally named the Forever Family, but it sounded too Manson-like. Right, right. (laughs) Yeah, you made a branding error. Yeah. He made a huge break. And you know what? It's funny because he actually saw that, which he's, he was such a bad cult leader. It, it, it's, it's pretty comical that he even was able to put this group together and keep it around for so wow. long. Cause when you look at how, you know, cult leaders are pretty talented oh, for the sure. most part. He, yeah, was yeah. Pretty bum- he was pretty bumbling, <laughs> but yeah, he did make a branding error. So he knew that. And he also wanted to incorporate it to be tax free. So he included the word church in the new title. Oh, church I see. And mm-hmm. Bible, you know, it's like, right. oh, it's official. It's real. It's not, it's not the weird forever family. However, my parents entered it in the early seventies when it was still the forever family. And they met there, they lived, com- it was, everyone lived communally. Stuart was a vacuum repair man in his prior life. He was a lot older than everyone he it's recruited. It's so funny we forget that was a thing, right? The traveling salesman. This has come up in a couple of cults that we've looked at. People who would go door to door. You know, I guess the personality of someone who recruits people into a cult and a door to door salesman, they probably share some commonalities. Gwenda, bingo. Bingo. I mean, really, truly, I think the door-to-door salesman could most easily fall into the cult leader Mm -hmm. kind of bucket. I mean, not that they they all do. Like anyone else is doing door-to-door work. It's not that you're a cult leader in the making, but it's a skill set that's very similar. It's talking to strangers. It's convincing them to do something that they don't need before they have seen your face. Right. Yeah. And convincing you that you have some kind of deficit that they're going to rectify. And so his became, he was an atheist the Stuart Trail guy. And he he just kind of developed this whole church, as he called it. And it really, my mom describes it as kind of, it went against like the old stodgy churches. It was just a bunch of like hippies getting together in living rooms and wanting to save the world. You hear it in Scientology. You hear it in every single, you know, pretty much any cult that's based on religion. Nexium is a little bit different because it was a business model, but it's just this idea that you want to do something greater. And this guy's telling you he is the answer. Right. That's what it was. Right. Yeah. And you're spe- you're going to be part of the special group who gets to know what the answer is and work on it first. Right. And so he built it all on, you know, a few verses in the Bible that were about throwing away all of your material goods and, and taking up your cross and following Jesus. That was his big thing. And so he had everyone start working in a business that he founded, which was the Christian Brothers carpet cleaning business. And that was because he had, you know, his trade was yeah. vacuums, basically, <laughs> in small machines. And so, yeah, my dad worked in that business. And that was what was spoofed on Seinfeld. It was called the Sunshine Carpet Cleaners. 
and they came to clean George. They they were very cheap and they were based in Manhattan and they were so cheap because like FYI, they were working on slave labor. Right. They weren't paying right. the cult members. And so they actually outbid almost everyone on of the course. island of Manhattan sure. in the 70s and 80s. <laughs> and so everyone was getting their carpets cleaned and their wood floors refinished and everything by the Kobu or the sunshine carpet cleaners in Seinfeld. And that was, it was so funny. That episode was George was trying to get recruited, but he wasn't even good enough to get recruited by the cult members. And he was like, that would be me. That would totally be my experience. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. We're going to look elsewhere. He was so pissed because he's like, what? I'm not good enough. Yeah. So I know you were very young when your parents left. Do you have any memories of when you were growing up of kind of being around? Were you in Pennsylvania or had it moved? So I was born in Pennsylvania, but I lived with them. They were there for about, gosh, probably five to seven years. I I don't know the exact timeline, even though my mom has told me over and over again, I can never remember it. And I was just over three years old when we left. I do remember it. And probably from that like year three, because I think that's when memories start. But I have very vivid image memories of a lot of it. And in contrast to what the group was really like, because it was pretty harsh, they did take all of your money, they did treat you poorly. I remember really feeling good about it because there were so many women and children around. And I actually joked with my mom when I had a baby. I was 35 when I had a baby. You know, she was like 21 when she had me and she was in this cult. And I had no one to help me. I was like alone. You know, I had my husband and I was like, God damn it, I wish I was in a freaking cult. Like, there are so many women helping you raise your babies and there's like other kids to play with. And that's what I remembered as a child. And she, she's, she actually will admit to this day, even though they're so glad they got out. She's like, there was an upside to it. (laughs) That's so interesting because I do think like, you know, obviously these cults tend to be bad for women overall and women tend to be kept very close, but there is something to be said you know, we joke on our podcast about the Crone Coven. There is something very attractive about the idea of having a sisterhood of people to kind of help you get things done. Yeah. And it kind of keeps you there. I think that's what really kept my mom there more so than my dad. My dad had, you know, they called the the men, the brothers, and they called the women, the sisters. And my mom is that kind of gregarious, you know, after they left, she formed those kinds of women friendships all throughout her life. She was always a girl's goal. She wanted, she wanted lots of women around. And so, you know, she was just that kind of person, but I think my dad influenced our leaving probably more than her because he was like being worked to death. And so interestingly, Kobu, unlike, uh, some other cults, I think they were harder on the guys than the women. They left the women alone for the most part, except for Stuart in his later years. Of course, just like textbook, every cult leader started building a harem of women to sleep with. Of course. Of course. It's just part of the playbook. It is. It's totally inevitable. And the ones who don't are abusing young male members of the cult instead. Uh, Exactly. It's like, it's so tragic, but it's so stereotypical to just find the same abuses over and over again, you know, but yeah, yeah. When we were there, I think it was so early and and so disorganized. We lived in a, in the Bowery district in Manhattan and which was a totally different, right. Which was very different back then. 
Oh, totally different. I mean, my mom says we lived in these lofts for like no money and it was like not a gentrified neighborhood. Oh, no. Right. Right. And they were the crazy cult members, but it was also the 70s. So like everybody was crazy down in the village. And it wasn't a a place where like you 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 went to find high end real estate. The village voice was like two doors down and they used to dump buckets of water on the Kobu members heads and like scream at them. And it was just like mayhem. When you talk to people who have heard about the cult, what do you think the biggest, is there a big misconception that people have or is the overall sort of view pretty accurate? I think it's interesting because uh, there are cults that don't live communally like Scientology and there are cults that we do call live it, We call them cultimort. <laughs> so, right. Because they're very litigious and we've been warned not to talk about them. <laughs> okay. Well, I, I really do. I talk about them quite a bit. Oh, and it, <laughs> you know what's scarier? Talking about reality TV. Those housewives oh, will come sure. after. Oh, sure. No kidding. And the fans. <laughs> I it, ser- The fans. Uh, yeah, I know. Seriously. It's a scarier world talking about Bravo than it is about cults, interestingly that enough. Sense. That makes sense. Yeah. Oh, but get this. Get this, Gwenda. So just, oh, it was a week week before my podcast was about to drop a week before Halloween, Stuart trail dies. Mm. And so I was like, Oh my God. Cause I thought I want to talk to some of his family members at some point, or I'm hoping that a lot of people reach out to me because the Kobu still exists in skeleton form, even after his death, you know, last month. So people are coming out of the woodwork to talk about it now. But back to the the biggest misconception, I think, is that um, when you live in a com- a commune, it's all like free love and free sex and drugs. And the Kobu is a little bit different than that because it was being run as this really strict Christian kind of cult. So I would equate it more to like a Mormon lifestyle or something. But it was absurd in the way that Stuart ran everything, unlike just a regular church. And he had you, it was a total institution kind of cult. So he had you working for him for no money. He had you living under his thumb. He had you going to services. He called them big meetings and they'd last for like seven hours every night, you know, all night long. And so it was everything in your life was run by it. It reminds me a lot of a more chaste version of um, a cult that we talked about that I'm blanking on the name of now that's still around too, but has a skeleton sort of membership that owned the vineyard and made people basically build their winery. But the thing that I, when I was just doing some research for this, that I found very, that reminded me of them especially is that one of the ways that they made money besides their vineyard was in selling like high end artifacts and furniture and I guess that's similar to Kobu, right? Because they have yeah, this they, like... They've been doing that for years too. And you can find their stores, yeah, on the East Coast. So New York, I think they have some in Philly called Old Good Things, Old with an E to make it Oldie. extra fancy. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Classy. <laughs> yeah. And really, they have people still working for basically nothing. You know, they'll you'll, you'll earn quote wages and then you'll get your social security or your your tax return at the end of the year, and it will say all of your income was donated to the church. And so those are the, and so they're making tons of money. I think Stuart Trail at the time of his death was worth, I don't know, 8 million or something really, really low compared to what cult leaders can do. <laughs> but, but still, you know, as somebody who didn't come from family money or 
Exactly. Exactly. Well, and, and, I find it, and I'm sure this is one of the things that frustrates you too. But when I was, I was reading through some of the articles and there was, as I'm sure you're familiar with, a spate of them about this, the salvage business mainly like back during the time, like the New Yorker, when the guy had gotten the scavenge contract for the New Yorker and almost all these places just sort of covered it as, Oh, here's a funny thing. This cult runs this, you know, fancy, um, salvage recovery business that was it they never really talked about any of the dark side of things that have been done and i mean this seems to be very true with a lot of coverage of cults that are lesser known that they just don't talk about the the problems and the shady parts it's just oh this is an interesting tidbit and so i think people have no idea how harmful they really are when you get and dig into the details of people's experiences I totally agree with that. I 100% agree with that because, yeah, it's almost, um, I don't know, not infantilized, but seen as just something goofy. Yeah, you know? exactly. And when the people who leave, and we stayed friends with a whole exodus of families who left when we did, they're really, you know, their 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 lives are changed in a way. Like I said, you know, having having parents who who left something like that and who entered it so young, their further education was stalled. Now nobody did this to them. They they decided to enter, right. you know, so it was their choice. But it was also their choice to leave. So good for them. It really shaped our lives in a way, like kind of being a little bit paranoid, being a little bit, you know, rudderless in a way, your your ability to trust organizations or leaders and things like that. And I don't know, it just, it has, it has ripple effects upwards and downwards. So it has it, you know, for your kids, obviously, whether they were in the cult with you or not, because you're going to pass your mores and your values onto them and also your suspicions, but it, it goes upward too. I mean, it affects the parents of cult members. And I think, Parents of cult members are often listening to things and reading things if they're if their kid is in a weird church or a weird group and they're like, is this a cult? And they don't know what to do. And I feel like it's so valuable to hear from ex-members of cults to understand the intricacies, not just be like, you're crazy. So that's the <laughs> perfect seg because so so I, I do think it's a really interesting, like your podcast is a little bit different than others because that is the approach you're taking. So you're really going to be talking to survivors and people who came out of these groups, right? Right. Conversations with like boots on the ground people. Yeah. yeah. And giving it, and I love the idea of covering in depth over a season because then you can get a bunch of different voices and viewpoints in, instead of just like one person's experience and then extrapolating from it. Because obviously people have very different experiences with these, with these leaders, depending on what time frame they were in, you know, what gender they were. You know, whether they were targeted for, you know, like higher roles and that sort of thing. Yeah. And I think once you get a lot of different people, like you said, gender, age, their background, how much money their family had or didn't right. have. Do they have divorced parents? Did they have a sibling who cared about it? I mean, there's so many different factors that play into the support system a person needs to leave a really wretched group. Like, you know, what I would, I would, the Kobu, I think was, was one of the hardest groups to leave. In fact, I've done some research. There's a cult deprogramming center in Arizona and they said Kobu and cults like that are some of the hardest to leave and the hardest to let go internally because different than 
say, we'll use Nexium as an example. When you leave Nexium, you don't have to necessarily still believe in that, but find just a different leader. So people who leave Kobu, even now, they still want to be Christians. Right. So it's not like you just leave the whole belief system behind. Or even Leah Remini has covered, you know, in, in her coverage of Scientology, people who leave Scientology aren't still walking around believing in Thetans or whatever. Like, they're not they're not still buying into that worldview. But leaving Kobu is, is saying, they'll tell you if you leave, you're damned to hell. You're not a Christian. You're not doing it the right way. And you've believed it for so long that when you leave and you see all these other churches and you're like, well, I still want to, you know, I still kind of believe in this. And it's a normal thing to believe in for so many people, too. It's just, it's a major religion. I mean, I think this is one of the things that we, I mean, you know, you see with organized religion, like, you know, because there obviously are a lot of churches that become unhealthy, too, that might not rise to the level of a cult or get organized enough to be a cult. But people will always question, like, well, why do people stay in churches that don't mirror their values or whatever? But it can be very difficult when your entire life and your family are bound up in this sort of tradition and you've internalized the values of it. It is not always easy to leave that stuff behind, especially if you have no financial resources. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And so I think talking to a variety of people, like you were saying, gender, everything else, I think it helps um show not it's not just one kind of person who can get caught up in this absolutely (laughs) and there are common threads among all of them so if you're struggling or if you know someone who's maybe trapped in something they shouldn't be you can kind of start to you know pinch those threads out of the stories too yeah that's great that's a great way to think about it so remind people where they can find you well, you can find my podcast. If you yeah. found this podcast, you can find <laughs> mine on the same platform, uh, you know, Google, iTunes, Stitcher, Play, or Stitcher, Google Play, all those. And it's called Cult Talk with Aaron Martin. You can also follow at Cult Talk on Instagram or Twitter, or you can find our Facebook group to have a conversation with listeners. And there are plenty of ex-cult members on there to talk to as well at Cult Talk with Aaron Martin on Facebook groups. And thank you so much for coming on. We love your what you're doing and um, can't wait to hear what you do next season, too. Thank you, Gwenda. I'm so honored to be your first guest. That's wonderful. Love your podcast, too. So we'll, oh. I'm sure we'll connect in the future. Absolutely. Thanks so much. So thank you to Erin Martin uh, for taking time out to talk to Gwenda about her new upcoming podcast and obviously the cult that she is familiar with and kind of grew up in. You're like shaking your head. Not, yeah. Not, oh, sorry. Oh, yes. yeah. This is radio. She's sorry. Silently agreeing. Yeah. Sorry. It was. It was really fun <laughs> to talk to her. Um, and I'm I'm very excited to see like what she does next season too. Um, yeah. It's time for me to eat food because before we were recording this, I had my first rehearsal at the Ariel Studio where I'm playing a ghost of the Romanovs in our show in three months. That is like one of the best sentences I've ever heard in my life. <laughs> Had rehearsal at the aerial. Like, how did you not lead with that when we first Sorry, started recording? I forgot because I was still like, I still have my endorphin high going then, and now I've crashed. That was uh, <laughs> right. But uh, so, well, thank you to Aaron. And we're going to let Gwenda go eat. But um, for usual, you know, leave us some love on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can find us on social media at Cult Faves on Instagram, on Twitter, on Facebook. I don't know why I keep pushing Instagram. I still don't know the login. <laughs> but we'll get back well, on it. Well, you know, 
Well, eventually, we'll you you won't even believe it. We're gonna get our shit together. That's we totally will. I swear, it's our New Year's resolution. That's and, right. And uh, <laughs> you can always drop us some love at cultfavespodcast.com or cultfavespodcast at gmail.com. Until then, yeah, we'll be back in two weeks. Two weeks, yeah, two weeks. Bye. Bye. <laughs>